Okay, students. Now we're going to have Dante's of the Divine Comedy 2019, Lecture 16, Traitors to Guests, Rightful Lords and Satan, Part 1, Cantos 33, 234, Slides 304 to 326. But as promised, I want us to open to the back of our translation of Dante's of the Divine Comedy by Oxford World Classics. This is the C.H. Sisson one. Please open to page 569 to the very first note regarding Inferno 33. So, we see in italics, in the second zone of Cositus Antonora, Dante hears the story of the treachery of Archbishop Ruggieri of Pisa and the ensuing death of Count Ugolino della Gerardesca from the Count's own lips. Alright, good. Look down to the note on lines 13 to 14. So, I have given you a brief account of Count Ugolino and Archbishop Ruggieri and the fact that Ugolino had been a Guelph, but then he was a Ghibelline, but then he was a Guelph again, and that he had seeded a few castles, but I sort of mixed up some of the details. So in order to get the details straight, I thought I would read to you this note explicitly. And it says this, Ugolino della Gerardesca, Count of Donaratico, excuse me, uh, years about 1220 to 1289, was of a wealthy Ghibelline family. Extensive landowners in the Pisan, Marima, and Sardinia. He joined forces then with his Guelph kinsman, Giovanni Visconti, a betrayal which earns him his place here in Antinor. So his first betrayal was between his Ghibelline family and his Guelph family members. He sided with the Guelph ones. And after an initial reverse, gained considerable power in Pisa in 1276, a normally Ghibelline city. It was after Pisa's disastrous naval defeat by Genoa in 1284, leaving the city weakened and surrounded by her enemies, that Ugolino was made Podesta. Remember, that is the leading magistrate, that's the mayor. He probably, or excuse me, he ceded, that means gave away, certain castles to the Guelph powers of Florence and Lucca, probably in order to buy time to consolidate the city's position. Remember, they just had a huge naval defeat and were weakened, and thus needed alliances, not enemies. When the city's disgruntled Ghibellines, under Archbishop Ruggieri Deli Ubaldini, began to regroup, and present a threat to Ugolino the Podesta, then agreed to join them, disclaiming his Guelphism. All right, there it is. He was Ghibelline, then he was Guelph, then he was Ghibelline again. The archbishop first accept, accepted Ugolino's recantation, and, but then in 1288 treacherously imprisoned him with four of his family, two sons and two grandsons, causing them to be starved to death, as Dante relates. In 1289, with the city firmly Ghibelline and following the archbishop's resignation as Podesta, Guido de Montefeltro was appointed to the office. And remember Guido de Montefeltro, de Montefeltro we met in Inferno uh, 27 amongst the deceitful counselors, and he was the one that had his soul taken down to hell, not by Francis, but rather by a black cherubim. So you see that interconnected nature of Dante's work. In any case, that's the story of Ugolino. Those are the facts, and now they've been set straight. Let's begin with a quote. On to Ptolemaea, the third part of Cositus, the fourth river of the underworld. Because their first tears freeze into a cluster, and like a crystal visor, fill up all the hollow that is underneath the eyebrow. This is a beautiful image, if you imagine it. And though because of cold my every sense had left its dwelling in my face, just as a callus has no feeling, nonetheless I seem to feel some wind. Now, ooh, a wind down at the bottom of hell. You would not expect that. And I said, my master, who has set this gust in motion? For isn't every vapor quenched down here? Where is the wind coming from? And he to me, you soon shall be where your own eye will answer that. When you shall see the reason why this wind blasts from above, 
Virgil says you will soon see the cause of this wind. Here is an image of Frater Alberigo, and what he is doing here, I think I misspelled his name in your study guide, but in any case, you can see him here relating a wonderful feast, and again, we are going to see the inappropriate eating, just like in the Odyssey, when people inappropriately eat. When you're a cyclops and you eat men, you get damaged. When you're a man and you eat lotus, you get damaged. When you're a man and you eat the cattle of uh, Helios, you get killed. When you're a suitor and you do not give to the gods and you eat someone else's food, you get killed. Again, we see this image of an ignoble feast or the inappropriate sort of communion, the disgraced communion. We will have someone who dies inappropriately at a feast, and it will likely recall to you quite a bit Agamemnon's death by the hands of Aegisthus and Clytemnestra that we heard related to us in the Odyssey last year. And one of those sad sinners in the cold crust cried to us, O oh, souls who are so cruel that this last place has been assigned to you, take off the hard veils from my face so that I can release the suffering that fills my heart before lament freezes again. His eyes are frozen shut from his tears, and they're keeping more tears from coming out. So he wants to cry more, so he says, Wipe away the tears and the ice from my face so that I can continue to cry, which is a sad request to have to make. To which I answered, If you'd have me help you, then tell me who you are. If I don't free you, may I go to the bottom of the ice? This is actually an agreement that Dante makes that he will not keep. He will end up betraying this traitor. And he will actually make the claim that to betray a traitor is actually a good thing. So, say, if I entice you, if I'm at war, if I'm the Greens, and you're the Blues, and we're at war, and I entice one of you Blues to come over to the Green side, then it is well within my right, according to Dante's reasoning here, to betray you, to not give you what I originally offered after you've given me the information I need. Very similar to, ah, uh, yes, last year, book nah, 10, excuse me, of the Iliad. You recall somebody, a traitor or a spy, going out into the night and being caught by two Achaeans, Diomedes and Odysseus, Ulysses now. And they caught this traitor, and then one of the men, Odysseus, said, put away thoughts of death. Don't think about dying right now. Well, the traitor's teeth, teeth clacked. Uh, uh -huh. And then he gave all the information, in particular about the Thracian writers who had just gotten there, and then, what was his great reward for betraying his people? Well, his name was Dolan, and his reward was that he got his head cut off. And Dante seems to agree that that was precisely the right thing to do. You might as well not betray the people who are your people, because then it is within the rights not only of them, but also of the people that you betray them to, to kill you. So it is literally illogical for any reason to betray those around you, which I think is uh, amongst the most powerful arguments that exist. He answered then, I am Frater Alberigo. That means Brother Alberigo. That means he's a monk or a friar. The difference between a friar and a monk is that monks go off and they say in a uh, convent, not a convent, that's, uh, that's for nuns, but they say in a cloister, they say in a monastery, there we go, they go away from the world, whereas friars go out and they help give alms to the poor. They go out into the world. They're like the public uh, monks. In any case, he answered then, I am Frater Alberigo, the one who tended fruits in a bad garden. You see again, uh, uh, not only references to the Garden of Eden not, and to gardens, but also, again, food metaphors. Um, the one who tended fruits in a bad garden, and here my figs have been repaid with dates. Apparently, uh, dates were lower quality than figs at that time. That's one of my favorite things to eat these days, are bacon-wrapped dates. Yum, especially with some, some uh, goat cheese on them. But then I said, are you already dead? Something curious here. And he to me, I have no knowledge of my body's fate. Within the world above, that's an odd thing for someone who is not, who is dead to say. For Ptolemyo has this privilege, and this is very interesting. Quite frequently the soul falls here before it has been thrust away by Atropos. Remember, Atropos is one of the three fates. She's the one that cuts the cord. 
uh, and that you may, with much more willingness, scrape these glazed tears from off my face. Know this, as soon as any soul becomes a traitor, as I was, then a demon takes its body away and keeps that body in his power until its years have run their course completely. The soul falls headlong down into this cistern, and up above, perhaps, there still appears the body of the shade that winters here behind me. You must know him. If you've just come down, he is Sir Broncadoria. For many years he has been thus pent up. I said to him, I think that you deceived me, for Broncadoria is not yet dead. So how could he be down there? He eats, again, eating metaphor, and drinks, and sleeps, and puts on clothes. There in the Malabronke's ditch above, where the sticky pitch boils up, Michael Zonke had still not come, he said to me, when this one, and that's just where we're going on. So, let's get into some details of Ptolemy. First person we meet here, the first shade we meet here, is Frater Albergo. And Dante agrees to wipe his dried tears if Father, or Frater, excuse me, I'm going to make that mistake probably, if Frater, brother, I'll call him, Albergo's eyes, oh, excuse me, Dante agrees to wipe the dried, frozen tears from the eyes of Frater Albergo if Frater Albergo will tell him his story. Now, as I told you earlier, Dante later betrays this trust. And he claims justly, because it is just or fair to betray or punish a traitor. And thus, a, uh, an unjust action reserves, or, or deserves a just punishment. Okay, one betrayal begets another, seems to be the idea behind this. If one betrays one's guests, and we're called it Ptolemy, Ptolemya is the circle, or excuse me, the part of Cositis, where those who betray guests are. And remember, there are two people on whom this is based. Uh, Ptolemy XII, the brother of Cleopatra, who offered Pompey the Great safe passage to his home, killed him the moment that he got off his ship, or Ptolemy the captain at Jericho. In any case, what is it that this man this brother Alberigo, this frater Alberigo, did. Well, first and foremost, know that this is uh, the punishment. What is unique about this punishment? Well, when a soul betrays a guest, apparently the soul, leaving their body on earth, immediately head first dives down into hell, dives down into Cositis, dives down into Ptolemaea. Well, if the body's still on earth, does it continue to move and do things? The answer is yes. But who moves the body? Now, a demon. And who is a demon that Dante actually knows? Who is still alive? Or who is a person who is still alive who has a demon in his body, thus committing malicious acts? Well, that would be Branca Doria. And again, we see there is a prefiguration, as there are many prefigurations leading up to Lucifer, of Lucifer's headfirst fall due to betrayal. We see an actual man doing what this mythological character or this mythological demon also does, or this theological demon, depending on your theology. In any case, the idea seems to be that when you tie malicious reason, which is something a human has access to, to a malicious will, which is something a human has access to, you can do the worst, least divine, most infernal possible thing, which is something only a human can do. Since you only have a will, you only have reason, you are the only being that can possibly do evil, and so when you do join your evil will to your evil reason, it is as if you are acting like a living demon on earth, is Dante's idea here. Wow. Alright. Good. Well, why is Frater Albergo here? Well, well, well. This is a wonderful story, I think. Now, he seems to have been what somebody would have stereotypically called an old Italian, someone who takes offense at things, and perhaps is a little bit sensitive and thin-skinned. Well, he some insult was done to him 
by this character named Manfred, who we will meet in Canto 3 of the Purgatorium. We'll see a nice scar disfiguring his handsome features. Well, this Manfred was the son of the Holy Roman Emperor in the middle of the 13th century named Frederick II, Frederick of Hohenstaufen, who we've talked about before. And apparently, he made some insult to Frater Albergo, and Frater Albergo said, Oh, I'm, I'm over it. I, I accept your apology. Uh, here, come over for dinner. Let's put everything to the side. And us knowing Greek mythology, we know obviously things are not set straight. This is not going to be an ordinary meal. Uh, and also being down at the bottom of the pal, we know that we do not have ordinary meals. We see Count uh, Ugolino eating the head of Archbishop Ruggieri after having to eat his own children, uh, which is based on the story of Tidius, the father of Diomedes, eating Melanippus after being felled by him. And so we know that something's going to go wrong with this, this feast. Uh, much like things are going to go right at the so-called uh, feast or pageant at the top of Purgatorio amongst the good so-called good fruit rather than amongst the rotten fruit here. In any case, this is what happened. They sit down. Manfred, this man, and then supposedly Frater Alberigo very famously says, bring on the fruit. And then has Manfred killed at dinner. And something else that I had not added is not only was Manfred his guest, Manfred was related to him as well. And something interesting about that story that will lead to the interconnectedness, which I'll lay out some in our second lecture on uh, the Purgatorio, will be... Uh, <coughs> will be that Manfred is actually very famous for having killed several of his own family members as well. So, live by the sword, die by the sword, kill family members, perhaps die by family members as well. In any case, Satan will be chewing on sinners, which will be another parody or corruption of the Last Supper, or of supper, or of meaningful transformational uh, eating imagery. In any case, digestion, bad food, evil fruits, image, uh, are all existence here, existing here, and in our next lecture, we'll actually start to come about the idea that uh, hell is itself sort of like the stomach of the world that is dealing with the indigestion of these corrupt, uh, of this corrupt matter, of these corrupt fruits, of these corrupt men. In any case, a little bit of allegory for you there. So, direct address number eight. Oh, Genoese, a people strange to every constraint of custom, full of all corruption. Why have you not been driven from the world? So these Genoese are apparently just as bad as the Florentines, just as bad as the Pisans. These Italians, very, very corrupt fruit at this time. And so, we move to Canto 34, to into Caena. Or, excuse me, shouldn't I say Cana? It should say now, mm -mm -mm. what is the for? Judeca. Very good. So make sure that you don't make that mistake. It is called Judeca, which is apparently also slightly anti-Semitic of Dante. I've recently read in the scholarship that that is what, uh, at least in Dante's time, you would call a community of Jewish people. So part of the idea here is that these people are people that were not Christian or pre-Christian or chose against Christianity or something there. I don't know. I simply mention that and touch on that because that's a piece of information that is true. In any case, this is the quote that begins the final canto of the Inferno, the first canticle of the Divine Comedy. Vexilla regis predeunt inferni. Toward us. And therefore keep your eyes ahead, my master said, to see if you can spy him. Just as when night falls on our hemisphere, or when a heavy fog is blowing thick, a windmill seems to wheel when seen far off. So then I seem to see what sort of structure, and next, because the wind was strong, I shrank behind my guide. There was no other shelter. 
Dante uh, thinks there's like this tower that's producing wind in front of him, and so he assumes it's something like a windmill. Something very interesting about that is uh, a couple centuries later in 1605, Don Quixote Part 1 would be uh, published by Miguel de Cervantes, considered the first novel, and obviously uh, since it's Spanish language, it has, uh, is the root cause of much Spanish language literature uh, that exists even to this day. And uh, Don Quixote is known to be a knight who tries to fight against a windmill, obviously making some reference back to Satan here. It's like he's fighting his own personal demons, as if everybody thinks that they're fighting against Satan, even though they might be fighting against a windmill themselves, because everybody's on a journey. And how that journey looks is, well, in general, the same for everybody, but in the particulars, different for everybody. Might be actual Satan, might be a windmill, might be something else. Who knows? In any case, what does this all mean? Satan. When we get to Satan, when we see Satan, we see that he is mindlessly chewing. In fact, he has three faces. And his three faces are mindlessly chewing three sinners who are not making comment. In fact, since his mouth is full, he being somewhat polite but chewing with his mouth open, and therefore being impolite, is uh, not going to speak. And part of the idea behind that might be that uh, he has been speaking the entire time in the inferno, that his language is the language of lies, and that all who lie or speak in some dishonest way are in some way uh, giving their minds and their will to Satan. Oh, well, that interpretation actually makes perfect sense, because if he is immobile and impotent and cannot enact his will, is just sort of like a mindless automaton, well then, what is Dante's idea for how evil is done in the world? Satan flies up and does it? Some demon does it? No, 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 no. Dante is moving towards this idea. That in order for Lucifer to exist, in order for evil to exist, humans must do evil. Humans must become vessels for evil. Humans are the ones that can think evil thoughts. Humans are the ones that can will evil de deeds. And humans are the ones that can malevolently lie to each other and betray each other. Uh, Satan seems to be the archetype or the prototype or the idea that lies behind such a human, which is a sophisticated notion. In any case, he is prefigured in Cerberus, and Cerberus mindlessly chewing. He is also prefigured in Pluto, and that Pluto babbles nonsense, cannot really speak, and also in Nimrod, who babbles nonsense, and the rest of the giants, who cannot speak, and are themselves bound uh, from the waist down, just as Satan is. Something else mentioned about Satan? He is, of course, so much larger, just as the giants are towers over Dante, so is he a tower over those towers. And he himself is also submerged in ice, beating his wings, mixing his tears with the blood of the sinners he is biting. Um, and because of the wind from his wings, he freezes the cositis. So he is half submerged up to the waist in ice that he has caused by the flapping of his wings, mixing with the tears and the blood of the sinners uh, that he is chewing and ripping in his mouth. In fact, the first sinner in the front, Judas Iscariot, he's not only chewing him, face first, rather than legs first, like Cassius and Brutus, he's also tearing at him with his claws, which is, well, terrible. He's also once <laughs> beautiful and the highest angel, and now is the source of all evil. And I'll read that quote to you in a moment. A couple things for your allegorical understanding of this place. And again, this should say, uh, it says Cana up here, it should say either Cositis or Judeca. And I'll change that for you next time. In any case, it's not simply the first part of Cositis. Let's look at how this entire final part of the Inferno is a place of absence, privation, lack, a lack of substance. Well, 
Judaca, Caena, Ptolemaea, Antonora, Cositis, they're a place of absence. Dark. Dark is the absence of light. Cold? It's cold down there. Well, that's the absence of heat. Well, it's a place not of love, but of hate. Well, what's hate? It's the absence of love. And Well, it's a place of evil. Well, what's the evil? Evil's the absence of good. Well, it's also a place of impotence. Impotence is a place in the absence of power. Well, they're immobile sinners down there, as well as immobile giants that take you down there, as well as an immobile Lucifer who is down there. Well, that's an absence of motion. Well, soulless these creatures are. And in fact, uh, in, in fact, you know that the sinners from Ptolemaea leave their bodies on earth soulless. Well, that's absence of a soul and thoughtless, as indicated through the lack of speech. Uh, that's also absence of a soul, absence of a mind, really. Dante, uh, and I just add this as well, is that you feel an infernal breeze down here, which indicates the impotence of the figure here. You will also feel a breeze at the top, or Dante will feel a breeze at the top of terrestrial paradise. But that breeze will be an ever-constant pleasant breeze caused by the moving of the celestial spheres. The celestial spheres, which supposedly caused a harmony uh, uh, of, of epic beauty for the Pythagoreans and Pythagoras. In any case, in any case, I just want you to know about these these lacks: dark, cold, hate, evil, impotence, immobile, uh, soulless, thoughtless, and that that is based on Saint Augustine's ideas on evil. He has a very famous argument for what evil it is. He wrote in Latin, so he says in Latin it's called the privatio boni. The privatio boni is the privation of good. Privation of good. Evil for him is defined as the lack of good. So the more good you have, the less evil you want. That's a very interesting way of looking at evil. He is not agreed with by all people, but there are still, to this day, many people that believe that that is the accurate definition. That evil should be defined against good in the same way that dark is defined in relation to light. Alright, here is a terrifying image of Lucifer eating Cassius and Brutus, legs first, Judas... Head first, he's covered in fur, he's described as having fur, um, which is sort of interesting. In any case, you see Dante and Virgil there, and you see also uh, poor Judas being scratched on the back there. And now, with fear, I set it down in meter. I was where all the shades were fully covered. This is the move to Judaca. But visible as wisps of straw in glass, there some lie flat, and others stand erect, one on his head, and one upon his souls. And some bend face to feet, just like a bow. So, Judeca. How are all the souls being punished? They are all completely immersed, submerged in ice. They are totally motionless. They cannot even move their faces. They can't move anything. They have lost all control of their ability to move, to think, to speak. They can't have any effect on us at all. They are totally removed from us. It's as if... To betray your rightful Lord is to totally remove yourself from a relationship with that person, from the warmth of that person. It is like you have uh, uh, been playing Monopoly, and you knock all the pieces off the board and throw the board away. Is the game still happening? No. The game is over at this point. The game is very over for these people. So much so that they're not even pieces that can be used for the board. They're not even named. But after we had made our way ahead, my master felt he now should have me see that creature who was once a handsome presence. How far things can fall. O reader, direct address number nine. 
Do not ask me of how I grew faint and frozen then. I cannot write it. All words fall far short of what it was. He's very scared in the presence of Lewis. It makes sense. Lines uh, 151 and 153 and Canto 33. I did not die, and I was not alive. Think for yourself. Good advice at all times. If you have any wit, what I became deprived of life and death. So he's making some claim that he has in some way become something like a zombie. Uh, some creature that is neither alive, that is neither dead, that can, uh, that can sort of move, but not by its own willpower or intention. Huh, interesting. Oh, yeah, there's a repetition there. The, is it? Uh, yes, good. The emperor of the despondent kingdom, this is Lucifer, so towered from the ice, up from the mid-chest, that I match better with a giant's breath. So a description of his size. Then giants match the measure of his arms. Now you can gauge the size of all of him if it is in proportion to such parts. If he was once as handsome as he now is ugly, and despite that, raised his brows against his maker, one can understand how every sorrow has its source in him. I marveled when I saw that on his head. He had three faces. One in front, blood red. And then another two that, just above the midpoint of each shoulder, joined the first. And at the crown, all three were reattached. The right looked somewhat yellow, somewhat white, corrupt, like teeth turned yellow from white due to coffee and cigarettes. The yellow in its appearance was like those who come from where the Nile descending flows, that means black. Beneath each face of his, two wings spread out, as broad as suited so immense a bird. I've never seen a ship with sails so wide, and it's that aquatic metaphor, that nautical metaphor again. They had no feathers, but were fashioned like a bat's, and he was agitating them, flapping them, so that three winds made their way out from him. And all Cositis froze before those winds. He wept out of six eyes and down three chins, and tears gushed together with a bloody froth. Within each mouth he used it like a grinder. With gnashing teeth he tore to bits a center, so that he brought much pain to three at once. Again, there's this unity and plurality symbolism and this corruption of the Trinity symbolism, this corruption of the Last Supper and of a transformational supper symbolism. The Ford Center found that biting nothing when matched against the clawing, that's Judas, for at times his back was stripped completely of its hide. Oh, that's all up there. Who asked suffer most, my master said, Judas Iscariot. With his head inside, he jerks his legs without. Of those other two, with their heads beneath, the one who hangs from that black snout is Brutus. See how he writhes and does not say a word. He's powerless to speak. The other, who seems so robust, is Cassius. But night is come again, and it's time for us to leave. We have seen everything. Just as he asked, I clasped him around the neck, and he watched for the chance of time and place. And when the wings were open wide enough, he took fast hold upon the shaggy flanks and then descended down from tuft to tuft between the tangled hair and icy crusts. All right. I believe this is our last slide for the day. Good. Satan, as I said before, but we'll say again so that you have a schematic of what he looks like. He has three faces. The one in the front is red. He is chewing on the center. Judas Iscariot, who gives his name to the fourth subcircle of Circle 9, which is called Judeca. It's also named for Judas, too. It's named for two reasons, apparently. In any case, Judas is face first and also being rended on the back. Well... In the yellow head, which is on the right shoulder, Cassius is being rendered legs first. On the black head, on the left shoulder, Brutus is being rendered, again, legs first. Cassius and Brutus, why do they have slightly less severe punishments from Judas? Well, who did they, who did they betray? 
They betrayed Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar to Dante was bringing about a new holy age. In fact, Dante in his work Monarchia, which he wrote before the Divine Comedy, believes that a king is the truest Christian position or the truest ruler Christians can possibly have. Uh, based in, to some extent on the ideas from the Old Testament judges and emperors. Uh, there was an old dispute back in the Old Testament between whether there should be a judge at the head of the people or a king. There were some uh, negative thoughts against kings because of the enslavement of the Jewish people. A very interesting time in any case. Um, <clears throat> what these two men did is they conspired against the first emperor of Rome who ended the Republic, which is something that many people wanted to happen at that time, and yet Dante believes that that was the wrong move. That said, when Julius Caesar was killed, there was another civil war, ended at the Battle of Actium between Mark Antony and uh, Augustus Caesar, then called Octavian, and then Octavian would become the first real, real emperor of Rome and would instigate a 200-year, uh, uh, about 200-year reign of peace called the Pax Romana. I think it's 207 years. In any case, Judas Iscariot. What did he do? Well, supposedly he was one of the 12 apostles of Jesus. And at the Last Supper of Jesus, Jesus says, One of you will betray me. Well, that one is Judas. And what Judas does is he accepts a bribe of 30 pieces of silver to tell local authorities where Jesus is going to be when they want to arrest him, and then they will arrest him. For this, he is considered a traitor of his rightful Lord. He betrays Jesus. This is considered even worse than Brutus, who betrays uh, uh Julius Caesar, who is not only his rightful emperor, but is also his father-in-law. And very famously, at the end of his life, in Julius Caesar, by, in the play called Julius Caesar by Shakespeare, says, et tu, Brute, which in Latin means, even you, Brutus. But we think he actually said in Greek, because he would have spoken ancient Greek to those who were his friends, because that was the uh, language of refinement in Rome in the first century, just as French was the language of refinement in uh, in, uh, in uh, Russia at the end of the 17th, beginning of the, or excuse me, end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century, well, he said, kaisu techne. And so, how much worse is betraying not only a friend, but the essence of the church, than even simony or idolatry, I ask as a question. And notice also just how giant Lucifer is in scope. Notice that he is also ugly as he once was beautiful, and that that is actually considered the reason for why he is the source of all evil, because his suffering is the most that anybody could possibly imagine because his transformation has been as bad as anybody can possibly imagine. From the most beautiful creature in all the universe, like a super Helen, to the ugliest creature in all the universe, like a super Thersites. And that to just experience that bad, that terrible transformation is what causes, uh, or it is the source of all the negative emotion, all the negative will, all the negative action in all the known universe. Um, which I think is very interesting. The idea that when you experience something that denigrates you, that it makes you worse, and makes you want to do worse, is a very interesting idea, and I think very closely connected to the idea of resentment um, being solid. All right, in any case, this is the beginning of the end. This is the first part to our two-part lecture on the end of the Divine Comedy.